Uh, I have a story. I don't know if you're interested. Yes, always interested in stories. All right.、Um, I was in Perth, actually, your country,、um, last two years ago to launch my book, and I was speaking at this church. It, it was a rather international church, and I was doing a seminar on what the book is about: how you can be a Christian and a Chinese without any problem. It's not an identity dilemma. After my session, this young man, who's obviously Chinese, came up to me and he thanked me for. Uh, the session, he said,、um, that was very insightful for me. And then he tells me his story. He says, "I'm from China, and I'm here in Perth because I am an exchange professor in one of the universities there, and he teaches mathematics. So clearly, very smart. You know, he's an adult, obviously. And so he said,、um, what you had indicated in your session about how I can be a Christian and yet be a Chinese." Um, with no problems, that really struck me because for a long time I want to believe, but somehow I had this impression that if I became a Christian, I would have to give up my Chinese identity. And subsequently, he said, "Thank you for that because I'm not the only one who's struggling with that question of identity, because I have a few other friends who are, who are also interested but are afraid to take that step." And then he said, "I'm going to think seriously about accepting Jesus." But let me talk to my mother first. Yes, <laughs> this is an adult, and and subsequently I found out that he is married and he has two kids. So he he is not he is not under twenty one. You know he's obviously older than that. He's a father. He's a professor in mathematics. You know, having lived in Perth, a, a kind of Western you know setting for a while, but yet. These were things that were very important to him, and I thought it was fascinating. You know, such、um, such a reflection of what we、uh, Chinese hold very dear to our hearts and 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 close to us. Yeah, that's my friend Ai Ching Thomas. We'll meet her a little later in the episode. But her story highlights one of the difficulties that arises when the Eastern mind meets the Western mind. Some would say it's particularly obvious in the area of religion. Christianity is a Western religion and a religion of individual freedom, right? But Eastern traditions emphasize family and community above the individual. The Christian mind and the Chinese mind are two venerable yet incompatible things. So Christianity should have a real problem in China. It's one of the attempted foreign invaders, and yet. Christianity is alive and growing in China. There's evidence of Christianity in China from as early as the eighth century, loads of evidence from the thirteenth century, and for the last two hundred years, Christianity has grown in China to almost unbelievable numbers, between forty and eighty million. With China set to become the largest Christian nation in the world, so say some scholars, in less than two decades. So what's going on? Is this a Western-controlled religious insurgency, or is there an Eastern Jesus many in the West have missed? Does Jesus' Middle Eastern origin make him just as compatible with the East as the West? I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions.
Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan's new book, Deep Peace, by Todd Hunter. Every episode of Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, culture or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. This month, we're celebrating our 500,000th download, half a million. Such fun. And so with the help of our major sponsor, Zondervan, we're giving away a book pack of five of Zondervan's newest titles. And we're going to throw in a copy of my Bullies and Saints as well, and an Undeceptions t-shirt. How do you win? All you got to do is leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or what used to be called iTunes. Take a picture of your review and send it to us. All the details are in the show notes. Producer Kaylee is going to pick the best written review on October 25. And I do mean best written, not necessarily best. You can write a a bad review of us, but you've got to write it beautifully. So be quick. You've got two weeks. Okay, on with the show. This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academic's new book, The Truth in True Crime. What investigating death teaches us about the meaning of life by acclaimed cold case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. After years of investigating the causes behind deaths and murders, chasing leads and solving crime, Wallace decided to focus some of those same instincts on the most notable death in human history, the death of Jesus. And while a few of Wallace's cases remain open, unsolved mysteries, the death of Jesus obviously wasn't one of them. His investigation transformed him from atheist to believer. Many of us are hooked on the latest true crime podcast. I'm looking at you, my darling buff. But Wallace reckons there's more than mere entertainment to be found in some of the big murder mysteries of his career. The Truth in True Crime offers some of the lessons Wallace has learned about human nature from both his murder investigations and ancient biblical wisdom. It's a cool idea for a book. You can pre-order your copy of The Truth in True Crime by J. Warner Wallace now on Amazon, of course, or even better, head to zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write forward slash undeceptions. zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Well, uh, about the political scene in the uh, the late 19th and early 20th century, I think what the most important thing that happened was the revolution of 1911, which ended a dynastic system that had lasted for about 2,000 years. Uh, but what that was followed by it was not a republic as it was declared. It was a republic on paper. China was the first republic in, in, in Asia on paper. But uh, what happened to China was that it began this slide into uh, warlordism. And later on, the, the civil war between the communist and the, um, and the nationalist. So the the, the the larger context is this post-dynastic chaos, and China was trying to find a way out of that chaos. 
That's Zhi Lian, Distinguished Professor of World Christianity at Duke University Divinity School in North Carolina. Professor Lian's research is focused on China's modern encounter with Christianity. Among his many academic writings are several more accessible books, including The Conversion of Missionaries, Liberalism in American Protestant Missions in China, and Redeemed by Fire, The Rise of Popular Christianity in Modern China. And another one I can't wait to tell you about. Well, the, the Protestant missions to China began in 1807. So uh, at the dawn of the, of the 20th century, it has been there for, for 100 years. It was beginning to take root. And, the, um, and it was mostly in the form of uh, denominational missions. Um, there were the, um, uh, the American, the, the British, the European, and Australian, you know, um, Protestant missionaries were, were working in China, uh, operating in, in different parts of China, doing medical work, doing education and, and social services. And I mean, were there many? Can you give us an idea of, um, you know, yes, they were doing schooling as well, but were they a, a big feature of early 20th century Chinese um, society or was it just a really a sideshow? Well, in fact, it was a much, much bigger uh impact and long-term influence than its number would suggest. Um, in the 1920s, that was the sort of a peak of the Christian uh, missionary movement in China. There were about 8,000 Western missionaries operating in China. But it's not just the size of the missionary force, but it's the kind of work that they were doing. For instance, they were pioneering in education for women completely new kind of education uh, that, um, that the Chinese women had never known uh, back in the you know, in, in imperial uh, periods. That efforts for uh, women's education, for instance, began in the, in the late 19th century. And by the early 20th century, it was, taking, was really taking a quite a mature form. But for all that progress in the social sphere, Western Christian missionaries often struggle to explain the theological meaning of Christianity in a culture where very different intellectual traditions had long reigned. A lot of the rituals or traditions that we see today that is practiced by cultural Chinese is not just Taoism, Buddhism and Confucianism. It obviously is a syncretism of all three, but all of these rituals were, were cultivated in the, the soil of Shenism. That's I Ching Thomas, a writer, thinker, and speaker specializing in making sense of Christianity in an Eastern, particularly Chinese context. And her book, Jesus, The Path to Human Flourishing, is a masterful account of why Christianity does and sometimes doesn't make sense to someone raised in the Chinese philosophical and religious tradition. Part of that tradition is what's called Shenism spiritualism uh, believe in the afterworld believe in a world in the after death world that is parallel to the world that we live in today and and i think that's reflected in a lot of the rituals that we do today um, i'm not sure if your listeners are familiar for example you know we believe that the departed spirits have a need for food have a need for money have a need for a house to live in and and so on and so forth and you see that during chinese all souls day where a lot of cultural chinese would burn paper construct of these things because they believe once they burn that their departed family members would be able 
to receive them in the afterworld. This Shenism is perhaps the oldest layer of the Chinese spiritual tradition, but it's not the only one. There's also Taoism, Confucianism, and Buddhism. Okay, so this is sort of pervasive and very ancient, and it predates the three formal sort of religious traditions. Can we move to the Tao now? Like, what on earth is it? Tao basically means the truth or the way. And therefore, it's commonly known as religion of the way. It believes that we have, we are all part of one reality, and uh, the problems that we have with humanity, pain, suffering, and all that exist because we have sort of moved away from the ultimate reality. And therefore, in order for us to regain some sort of balance in the universe or harmony in the universe, we have to return to the Tao. So how do we do that? And obviously, there are different ways that have been uh, promoted of how we can do that. But philosophical Taoism uh, talks about how this, uh, this quiet activeness. is actionless action is what it is. It's really hard to define that because even if you ask Taoist priests, I think it's going to be difficult for them to actually define what this wu wei mean, actionless action. Essentially, it is, it is to a point where you contemplate and, and allow yourself to drift back and join the Tao so that there's harmony in the universe again. By spending time in contemplation, in meditation with nature, being one with nature, over time it has evolved into a belief system that seeks eternal life in a sense where if you look at um, popular Taoism, a broad range of different gods that, that will help you um, achieve your different goals in life, basically. The Quest for Harmony by Returning to the Tao, the Way. Then there's Confucianism. Confucius was born at a time where there was a lot of poverty and there were a lot of political and social problems caused by a lot of the rulers um, in his area, in his district, in his region. And he came to the conclusion that uh, it is because of the corruption of the emperors and of the rulers that the, the normal citizen is suffering. And it got him thinking about what, is, what does it mean to be human? What does, it, what does it mean to be human? How do, we, how do we achieve full humanness? How do we flourish? And I think his conclusion was that we are meant to flourish. Uh, we are meant to flourish in community. However, because of the corruption of the people around him, of all the officials and the rulers, uh, it has sort of uh, taken the opportunity away from every person to flourish. And essentially, that's, that's the basis of his teaching. How do we get back to a point where we can cultivate ourselves? And he talks about how the, um, he talks about the noble self, the noble man and woman, someone who is educated, someone who is kind, someone who is virtuous, someone who has an appreciation for the arts, for beauty, uh, someone who is humane and benevolent, as I said, someone who uh, keeps his duty to his elders and keeps his duties to, to the ones who are in his community. So self-cultivation is really a journey or a pursuit in how to be a better person, a, a better self, um, a, someone you want to be better than your past self and you want to be a, be a 
to be better than your present self in that sense of the word. And of course, he prescribes what are some of the things that you, you should do in order to, um, in your journey to become a better uh, person. The easiest way to get a sense of this better human being that Confucius aimed for is to read his Analects, a short compendium of his quotable sayings. It's really short, shorter than the New Testament, and it's fascinating. Respect yourself and others will respect you. To be wealthy and honoured in an unjust society is a disgrace. The man who moves a mountain begins by carrying away small stones. Qigong asked, Is there one word with which to act in accordance throughout a lifetime? The master said, Is not reciprocity such a word? What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Famously, one of the things he, he said was, a kind of version of the golden rule. Don't harm others because you wouldn't want it done uh, to yourself. So very much um, he valued peace, didn't he? Peace amongst human beings. It was not really a power trip or a violence trip in any way. I think you brought up a really good point because uh, what you know as peace, I think for the Chinese, we call it harmony. Um, because I think the pursuit of harmony is something that is very significant for um, cultural Chinese. And, and you see that ex ex expressed in our social relationships, in our relationship in our family. Uh, and I think it's got to do with our shame-honour um, culture as well. So that's Confucianism. In order to flourish, become a person of honour, justice and peace. Then there's Buddhism, a topic we'll explore in detail in its own episode. But I Ching has some really important thoughts here. I want to know in particular uh, what you would say about how, how Buddhism manifests itself in China. What, what is the sort of Chinese vibe on Buddhism? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. When people think about Buddhism today, they would not see Buddhism as a foreign religion to the Chinese. But it is. It came from India. You know, I mean, in comparison to Christianity, the Christian faith is still seen as a foreign religion, but not Buddhism. And I think one of the things um, that has sort of contributed to that acceptance and, and, and embrace of Buddhism as their own is the fact that um, in, in a lot of ways, as you know, Buddhism is not as creedal as, as the Christian faith. And along the way, I think uh, because it's much more open-ended and is not as creedal as Christianity, it was able to sort of integrate very comfortably uh, with the local belief system, especially with Taoism. There's a lot of similarities between uh, Buddhism and, and Taoism. I mean, Taoism believes and Shenism believes in an afterlife and, and Buddhism uh, believes in that as well. And so they just sort of marry very conveniently. And also that idea of actionless action that you mentioned is very much like the detachment of Buddhism. Exactly, exactly. And also um, in Buddhism, it is believed that we suffer because of our desire, of our cravings, and therefore the solution to the problem is to cease from desiring, cease from craving. Same, very similar to Taoism, where it is to return to the Tao, where you, where you leave uh, your world behind and, and, and find a way in your actionless action to return to the Tao and be one with Tao again. 
And because of that, I think Buddhism has very easily and very quickly um, been assimilated into the belief system uh, of, um, of the Chinese people. So China has its own rich ethical and spiritual traditions, whether it's the very ancient Shenism or Taoism, Confucianism or Buddhism. They've all been regarded as trustworthy paths to negotiating the spiritual realm and improving the self and or society. It's no wonder then that under Chairman Mao, Christianity was treated as an unnecessary foreign invader. Professor Ji Lian. Well, the communists under Mao came to power in 1949, and that quickly was going to mark the end of Western missions because the communists were going to kick out the missionaries by the early 1950s. So it was going to bring uh, an entirely uh, new era to the Christian movement in in China. And and is it possible to describe the cultural revolution? I mean, I know it's a massive field of of scholarship, um, but how would you characterize that cultural revolution? What were its goals and methods? The cultural revolution broke out in 1966, and its most tumultuous and radical extreme phase lasted for about three years, but then it continued really until Mao's death in 1976. So Officially, the Cultural Revolution lasted for about 10 years, and it was the most radical phase of Mao's revolution. As the name would suggest, Mao attempted not just to bring about a political revolution, he was not satisfied with the political revolution or the social revolution that had been introduced into China, but rather he wanted a cultural revolution. He wants to completely remake the Chinese culture and 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 that was his uh, uh, the the extreme kind of um, revolution, uh, which wreaked havoc throughout China. Professor Lian has researched and written an amazing book titled "Blood Letters: The Untold Story of Lin Zhao." a martyr in Mao's China. It's about a young woman who embodies this struggle between the old China and the new. Lin Zhao was born in 1932, and her life would embrace a passionate commitment to communism and then a passionate commitment to Christianity. She eventually became a fiery dissident in Maoist China. She started out in the mission schools, but then embraced communism with zeal. So I want you to tell us about those early days before she was a dissident. Yes, it was quite a tortuous personal journey that she embarked on. And that began, that journey began at this mission school, the Laura Haygood Memorial School, founded by the Americans, the Southern Methodists. And, you know, the the Methodists were trying to introduce a kind of a gentle reformism uh, to to remake the Chinese society, to address the social ills. And, and, and that's where she began. But quickly, it became clear to her that that kind of reformism was not radical enough. It did not complete, promise a complete salvation, a redemption of Chinese society. And so during that time, she was hearing this gospel of communism, and which promised to end exploitation, end injustice once for all, and introduce this utopian society. And, and she was drawn to that. And the ironic thing is that 
she when she became a an underground Chinese Communist Party member just a few months after her own baptism into the church. So somehow in her mind, the two things could fuse together: this baptism into into um into the church and this baptism into the revolution could somehow become one. Uh, it's you know it's it's unthinkable uh, from our perspective, but at that time, in fact, it was quite um it was quite a a, a popular thing to do for many of the radical students who saw Christianity and and communism as embarking on the same kind of a mission to remake the Chinese uh, society. And, and is it especially because Methodism historically? Has been very concerned for the poor and the outcast, and so that step to communism, you know, one one can see it, can't one? Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're right. Uh, there there were mission societies, like for instance, like the China Inland Mission, which was a very conservative and and very indi individualistic kind of a preaching, a very individualistic kind of Christian faith, that did not invest as much as the uh, as the Methodist missions did on things like education. On or, or healthcare, so uh, there there is that um, uh, that 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 characteristic that we find in the Methodist missions. Lin Zhao was an educated Chinese nationalist, a Christian convert, and an ardent communist. At least for a while, these seem like contradictory traditions. But as I Ching tells me, there are elements in the Christian faith that resonate with the historic Chinese longings. Even behind the venerable tradition of Confucianism, there is an often overlooked theism, a sense that behind everything, and perhaps just out of reach, there is a mind that rules all. You said a moment ago that he he's been misunderstood as a humanist. And it reminds me, one of the things that struck me when I, when I read some uh, of, of the Confucius literature, he talks a lot about heaven. I mean, a, as a metaphor of something above us, he says, heaven guides us, heaven determines our future, heaven this, heaven that. What do you think he means by that? I think when he talks about heaven, he is he is referring to the one supreme Lord or God. Um, there is a belief of Shangdi, which is the one supreme Lord, the one God. Obviously, I started off talking about Shen and Gui. And Shen, uh, which commonly in Chinese language, people sort of use it interchangeably with the term God. But Shen is actually good spirits. It's not, not really God in uh, Shangdi is the one supreme god. So uh, there is an evolution if you if you trace back of how it was Shangdi and over time with as it syncretized with some of the the belief system and eventually neo-confucianism with Buddhism and and so on. Uh, it has evolved from a reference to the one supreme lord from Shangdi to heaven Tian. Uh, but yet heaven is used interchangeably with Shangdi, which is the Supreme Lord. In Confucius' writings, he often talks about the mandate of heaven. And what this is, is that this, there's this belief that the heavens knows best. Shangdi knows best what's, be what's best for us as humanity, as people. And therefore, um, I, I believe that even as Confucius was writing and talking about how, how we should 
be better noble men and noble women. There's this belief that we should seek the will of the heavens as to how we should do that. He may not have explicitly talked about it, but in one of his, in the Analects, um, in one of his discussions and dialogue with his followers, he actually talked about praying to heavens for the healing of one of his followers. This reminds me of the ancient Jewish tradition of avoiding naming God and speaking instead of heaven. Jesus actually followed that tradition. In Mark's gospel, you frequently hear Jesus speak of the kingdom of God when God comes to make all things well. But in Matthew's gospel, a gospel clearly written for a more Jewish audience, these same statements of Jesus are usually rendered kingdom of heaven. They mean the same thing, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. But Matthew's way of putting it probably does preserve Jesus' usual way of speaking. Well, Confucius did something similar, out of respect, referring to God as heaven. There is a kind of monotheism in Confucius, or at least henotheism, the one behind the many, that goes a long way back in Chinese culture, even before Confucius. Absolutely. Uh, I, I totally reject the theory that uh, we, we started out polytheistic and evolved to be monotheistic. In fact, I think it's the other way around. Um, Winfred Cordwan has written a really good book uh, on that and he's, he's done a lot more research. Um, but I think even as you look at Chinese history, I mean, if you look at the, the um, in Beijing, they have what they call a temple of heaven. Uh, where they offer sacrifices, not to, not to, um, not to a, a, a god in that sense, uh, but it, it's an altar that faces heaven. There's this sacrifice uh, and worship of heaven. It's popular to think that polytheism, the belief in many gods, came first in history and monotheism only evolved over the millennia. I'll explain later why I think the reverse is true, that monotheism is the root of all cultures and polytheism is the branches. In any case, the monotheism found in Confucius 500 BC makes clear that Christianity's vision of one supreme Lord is not completely foreign to the Chinese mindset. And as Lin Zhao's belief in Christianity's single God grew stronger, her faith in communism slipped away. But then uh, Lin Zhao somehow becomes disillusioned with uh, the communist project. Can you tell us, I mean, what do we know of how she became disillusioned? Well, the disillusion came very gradually. It was really hard for her to shake off her, um, this utopian uh, belief, this, um, this fantasy um, in, in the communist revolution, being able to deliver the Chinese people once for all. So after the communists came to power, she just threw herself into whatever political movement that the party unleashed. It was the land reform movement, and uh, she was quite happy to go along with that, even when it involved some degree of violence to suppress the landlords, for instance. Many, many landlords um, were killed because they were uh, deemed as um, the exploiting class. And um, so during the land reform movement, she witnessed some cruelty. She, she witnessed the, the hypocrisy of uh, those petty party carters at the local level, but that still could not shake off her faith in the communist movement. So really the turning point came in 1957 
after Mao launched two campaigns. One was called the the Hundred Flowers campaign to sort of entice the intellectuals to speak out, to criticize the party, promising them that uh, you'll be fine and nobody will get into any trouble uh, uh, for criticizing the party, but immediately turning around to denounce you know, more than a million people across the country as rightists. And Lin Zhao also became one. And so throughout China, all criticism, all critics were silenced and, and, and punished very harshly. So that really was the turning point. And she became entirely delusion in this party uh, that was so autocratic and so intolerant of dissent and, and, and any kind of criticism. Did that send her back to Christianity or, or was there something else that you know, sort of ignited or reignited that uh, Christian faith? Well, it's, the interesting thing is that obviously during the early 1950s, when she threw herself into the party's work, um, she could not attend church on a regular basis uh, because that was incompatible with a pursuit of communism. But I don't think she ever lost her faith. The, the roots that had, um, that had developed in the, during her, her year at Laura Haygood's her Christian faith had taken much deeper root uh, than she realized. So eventually, after she was denounced as a rightist, she came back to the church. So I think the real change was the, um, the external, her practice, the fact that she returned to the church, uh, went back to church services on Sunday. That was, the, uh, that was what could, uh, people could see. But I, I think, I suspect that throughout her, um, in fact, there's no, there's no evidence that she ever abandoned her faith during those years when she was uh, trying to do the party's work. The more disillusioned Lin Zhao became, the more strident her criticism of the Communist Party, and it led to her imprisonment. But what she pulled off from prison was remarkable, and it had a significant, if little-known, impact on the Chinese Christian landscape. That's a story coming up after the break. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, corruption and conflict have plagued communities like Kindu for decades, and access to quality education as a result is scarce. Schools around Kindu, one of the poorest parts of the DRC, are often dilapidated, they lack basic essentials like books or even teachers. Anglican Aid is looking to change that. By making a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid, you can play a crucial role in providing the tools and resources necessary to transform children's lives. Your donation will help workers on the ground in the DRC to rebuild classrooms, supply materials for students, and offer comprehensive training for educators. Already, there's been incredible progress. Five schools have been renovated, with over 600 students enrolled and thriving. But there's still plenty to do. Please visit anglicanaid.org.au forward slash Undeceptions to lend your support to an organisation Buff and I have long trusted. Help empower children to do what we frankly take for granted, 
chase their dreams and build a brighter future for themselves and their communities. Go to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions. Thank you. We are so grateful to our friends at Morling College for their support of the Undeceptions podcast. And they've just launched Morling to Go, a free series of short courses for you to explore key questions about the Christian faith, like why believe in God? That's a good one. How can a good God let bad things happen? Or simply, why Jesus? You can check out the free Morling to Go series and other study options hand-picked specifically for Undeceptions listeners. Just go to morling.edu.au forward slash Undeceptions. Morling, by the way, is spelt M-O-R-L-I-N-G dot E-D-U dot A-U forward slash Undeceptions. Professor Lian's biography of Lin Zhao, Blood Letters, details an incredible story of an indigenous Christianity persisting under communist rule. So tell us now about her arrest and uh, imprisonment and her extraordinary writings in prison. I mean, this is um, one of the most fascinating things I have ever read. Thank you. Uh, it's it's a it's a painful story, as you as you can um, as you can see. Um, the her arrest was not an extraordinary thing because you know, so many people at the time uh, were arrested. And um, after she was denounced as a rightist, instead of going silent as all other um, almost everybody else did, she decided to fight back. Um, and the, the way that she fought back was to write these two very long poems, one of them called Prometheus Day of Passion, uh, in which she presented Prometheus as a sort of a Christ-like figure who suffered because she because he dared to oppose this tyrannical Zeus and to steal this fire of freedom and bring it to humanity. And so, so she, that was her way of fighting back against Mao's uh, tyranny. For that and, and for her participation in the publication of this underground journal called A Spark of Fire, uh, she, was, she was arrested and thrown into jail. Uh, that was 1960. Now again, even that was not extraordinary because I mean so many people were imprisoned and so many people became counter-revolutionaries and were just locked up and that would be the end of it. And you would try to um, you will try to toe the party line, you'll try to undergo, accept and undergo this uh, thought reform and you'll be fine after, you know, 15, 20 years and, uh, and you'll be out of prison. But she decided not to do that. She refused to be silenced because she did not believe she was wrong. She, was, she did not believe that she could undergo the kind of reform because there was nothing wrong with her. She says the party that, that is wrong. And uh, and this is what I what I find that's truly uh, extraordinary about Lin Zhao, and that is, I don't think that would have been possible without her Christian faith. It's her faith that gave her this sense of duty that she had to oppose this what she called the tyranny and slavery 
of communism. And she wrote not just with a pen on paper. Tell me about these letters. That's right. And um, so instead of writing her you know, confessions in prison, she started writing all kinds of things, poems and the um, essays uh, castigating Mao's revolution and this communist system. And, um, and so during certain period of time when she was under interrogation, when she refused to write the kind of things that she would, they took away her, her pens and, her, and, her, and, and paper. So there was no stationery and she was handcuffed behind her back. Um, so under those circumstances, the only way for her to keep up her writing was using her own blood. And then it's that gave the um, the title of the book came from that particular form of writing. So she she poked her finger with a um, sharp bamboo or something, or a even the back of her toothbrush after she um, ground it on the uh, on the concrete floor to sharpen it, and poked her finger and then started writing on whatever she could find. She wrote it on her shirt, she wrote it on on pieces of torn uh, pieces of her sheet. And um, and so that was, so her blood writing was both a matter of necessity, but also later on, even when she got her stationery back, there were moments when she would still go back. She would go back to her uh, blood writing as a form of protest. And am I right in thinking she, she wrote something like 100,000 characters? Oh, that's the um, one letter that she wrote from her prison cell to the People's Daily. And this particular letter was in, what she did that in ink, with ink, she said. She was very careful, very clear about what she did with ink, what she did with her blood. This particular letter was uh, written in ink and it was 140,000 characters. Um, but she stamped each page with a, a, um, with a personal seal that she made and and but um and that was stamped in her own blood so she still um put her own blood to every page of what she wrote so does that translate to something like a hundred thousand words when you translate it or or is it not that much i'm just trying to get a sense of the literary output of this woman oh the literary output is is almost unthinkable uh of course that happened not all at once but uh, throughout the at various points Throughout about her, you know, between 1960 when she was first imprisoned and 1968 when she was executed. So during those years, she produced this, a steady stream of writing that totaled um, about 500,000 Chinese characters. Mao Zedong's revolution inflicted severe famines on his people, and his cultural purge sought to rid China of capitalists and traditionalists. One of his many famous mottos was, mercy to the enemy is cruelty to the people. The end result of Mao's reconstruction program, including the enforced famines, was between 10 and 50 million deaths. No one knows the precise number. Among the countless numbers of intellectual martyrs in this period, there were, according to scholars like James T. Myers of the University of South Carolina, 
many thousands of Chinese Christians targeted for execution. Li Zhao became one of them. She was sentenced in 1965. She was sentenced uh, to 20 years in prison. So the first few years were her this uh, pre-sentencing in interrogation, imprisonment interrogation. It was the most brutal part. But in 1965, uh, the 20-year the, the sentence was passed on her. And so supposedly this will be the end of it, right? She'll be spending her the rest of her days in, 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 and rot away in, in prison, except that she refused to back down and continue to, uh, to, um, uh, to denounce this, the, the violent ideology and practice of Mao's revolution. And then came the Cultural Revolution of 1966, when everything was radicalized, when the revolution uh, really entered into a, um, a feverish phase. And, and one consequence of that was that the, um, the um, this suppression of counter-revolutionary activities also stepped up, was stepped up. And because she had done so many things that was, uh, that was the amount of sacrilege against Mao's revolution. You know, she was smeared, she would you know, tear Mao's uh, portrait that's painted on the on front page of newspaper or smear her uh, his face with her own blood. All those, all those kind of sacrilege just became unbearable. So her sentence was, was then changed to the death penalty. And so that she was put to death in, 19, in April of 1968. And this was um, shot uh, is that is that's how she was executed? That's right. She was shot. Let's press pause. I've got a five-minute Jesus for you. There is a fascinating argument amongst historians and anthropologists about whether polytheism or monotheism is the more ancient. It's probably fair to say that the majority view is that belief in many gods, polytheism, is older. But I'm not alone in saying that's dead wrong. Sustained philosophical monotheism is probably more recent. But it seems that wherever you go in history, there is talk of the one unreachable mind behind the many. There is a kind of lament built into all the traditional non-Abrahamic religious speculations. The myriad gods or spirits are a kind of coping mechanism or compensation for the fact that the reality behind everything feels too distant. Perhaps, ultimately, it's unknowable. Chinese culture originally had this concept of Shangdi, the supreme force behind all reality. Confucius later depersonalized this concept, a little bit anyway, when he spoke of heaven, not God. But he still speaks of heaven calling him, heaven ruling everything, heaven rewarding us, and so on. And the spiritual void Confucius sort of accidentally created by this depersonalization was eventually filled by untold numbers of Chinese deities and spirits. Monotheism was the root and polytheism the branches. The same is true of indigenous religion in both America and Australia. In these traditions, so I'm told by those who know about such things, there is a great spirit that stands behind the more local spirits associated 
with landmarks and rituals. Indigenous religion does focus on these more local forces, not because they're thought to be more real than the underlying reality, but because they're more tangible, they're more knowable. They are a kind of compensation for losing touch with the one behind the many. And this was certainly true for Greeks and Romans. They knew there was an eternal logos, a word or operating system behind creation. But in the absence of further information, pagan religion tended to focus on the more manageable, placatable gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon. It's as if pagan religion said, if we can't know the architect of the universe, we might as well worship the bits and pieces of the house. If we can't know our cosmic parent, we should just make do like spiritual orphans with the scraps of transcendence we find lying around. To this ancient universal longing and lament, the Gospel of John in particular has a stunning answer. John was clearly aware of what the ancient Greeks meant when they spoke of the distant logos or word behind the universe. And his opening paragraphs seemed tailor-made to tell us that although we may be spiritual orphans if left to our own devices, the logos, the parent of us all, has come looking for us. Enarche en logos, he begins, which is in the beginning, was the word. Kaiho logos en prostontheon, and the word was with God. Kai theos en hologos, and God was the word. Kai hologos sax egeneto, and this word became flesh. Kai eskenosin en humin, and he dwelt among us. John opens his gospel, in other words, by saying, the logos of the universe has stepped across the eternal threshold into history in person, in the life of Jesus Christ. You can press play now. Okay, so I want to take all that we've said so far. We've thought about, you know, the Spiritism and Taoism and Confucianism and uh, Buddhism. Um and the honor-shame paradigm. I want to talk about um, what Christianity offers Asia. Um, I mean, anyone who's been watching the news realizes that Christianity has been booming in China in particular, but other Asian countries, for the last 50 or 60 years. Unprecedented growth there. What do you think, uh, culturally and psychologically, we can leave the spiritual stuff aside for a second, but culturally and psychologically, What's the attraction with Christianity in Asia? I think the sense of just freedom, uh, a sense of freedom and individual rights, that that has definitely been a key thing. Uh, I think for a long time, under the patriarchal, cultural and religious systems that you find in Asia, you know, Christianity is a fresh, a, a breath of fresh air where. Um, we talk about our faith with God, our individual belief, our faith, we make our decisions. So this is where the individualism is a positive spin. Are there questions that are sort of really basic in the Asian mindset um, 
that that maybe Taoism has asked and Confucianism has asked and Buddhism has asked, that you think people are finding the answers in Christ? Absolutely. And I think it goes back to um, what I talk about in my book about Confucianism, about how self-cultivation eventually would lead you to a point where you flourish, human flourishing. It talks about, Confucius talks about human flourishing, but how do you get there? You get there through good education. You get, get there, you know, when you do well in this life, in this world. But I think a lot of Chinese people are finding that, yes, I we have achieved what we need to financially. Uh, you know, we, ha- we, we are no longer in poverty like in the past. What now? Life still seems purposeless. And I think this is, this is the perennial existential question that is asked by everyone in every culture. You know, you've got all this, you've got to a point where now what? I remember talking to a management consultant uh, who is a Chinese young lady in Beijing once. And she was doing very well in her career and we were having this conversation and she said, she said, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy where I am. You know, I'm, I'm married. I, I have a child. I, I'm doing very well in my career. I have never dreamt that I would make this much money in my life. Um, my parents are happy because I'm supporting them, you know, and fulfilling my family duties as a child. But there's this just sense of emptiness. And she says, I don't know what it is. It's, there's something more, and I don't know what it is. Of course, I knew what it was, you know. And she, she was telling me about how a lot of her friends feel the same way. There's this sense of emptiness, and they fill it with buying more stuff. And that's why consumerism is a huge problem in China. Uh, they have all this money. What do they do? They have this void. They have all this money, so they buy things to fill, in, fill this void that's empty. So I think there's this existential longing um, uh, that exists, um, whether you are poor or whether you are rich, uh, and regardless of what culture you come from. And I think that China, especially with just in the last 30 years, having achieved what is achieved economically, um, they've got to, a lot of Chinese have gotten to a point, what next? What now? There's, why do I still feel empty? You know, the Communist Party had always accused Christianity of being a Western import, a part of the, the, uh, the cultural aggression, uh, cultural imperialism undertaken by, the, um, uh, by Western missionaries. Uh, but the reality is that the faith has become an entirely Chinese faith that, that people identify with. And I see uh, three main reasons for people's response uh, to Christianity. And the first one is that the Christian faith does empower people, the average, the common people, to deal with life's struggles and, uh, and, and, and crises. Uh, in the, for a long time, uh, in the rural area, for instance, um, that did not have the, um, the medical care uh, the state-provided state medical care. Uh, many people turn to Christianity for faith healing and exorcism, that kind of things. So there is that uh, level of people's response, which is a kind of individualistic faith. But then beyond that, the Christian faith also provides moral compass at a time that the Chinese society is, has been going through 
uh, after Mao, a period of ideological bankruptcy, and particularly uh, the Tiananmen massacre of 1989, uh, led to a total disillusionment with the ideology of communism in China. So the party, meanwhile, has tried to come up with uh, a, a substitute for that bankrupt ideology. Uh, it is now appealing to Chinese nationalism, you know, ultra-nationalism as something to unite people. But at the end of the day, people still recognize this is a real uh, crisis of, um, of this, uh, this void of ideology in China. And Christianity has filled that void. It, it provides the kind of a moral uh, north star to guide people in their life, in their life's choices. What do you think they find in Jesus Christ when, when they, they have this existential question? What is it about Christ? I think what they have found in Christ is that there's this purpose and meaning to what life is about is no longer about yourself. I think it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty sad purpose in life if you live for yourself. <laughs> uh, I think in Christ, you find a larger purpose in life. You're not no longer living for these things, but you're living for uh, a mission in that sense, seeing the kingdom of God come, seeing um, and, and, and re-looking at what human flourishing is about, which is what shalom is, uh, making a difference uh, in terms. And, and I think when they look around them, uh, and I'm referring to specifically in China, Chinese people, when they look around them, there's, a, there's so much wealth, but yet at the same time, there's so much immorality and evil. There's a lot of corruption and cheating. And I think that leads them to ask, there must be something more. And I think they find that in Jesus, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, and you know, if you read the gospel, it's very clear, you know, what this life is about. And Jesus gives that larger meaning to life. I asked Ai Ching if she reckons there are ways people have presented Jesus as too Western. Jesus wasn't Western or Eastern. He was Middle Eastern. Have we obscured that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I think, I mean, obviously, historically, if you look at how the, the Christian faith arrived in China, I mean, it was, uh, I always say, on the coattails of the imperialists and the colonialists, right? And they traveled upstream in the uh, on the boats with, uh, with a lot of these um, um, traders um, who brought opium to the people of China. And, you know, if you talk to any Chinese people, that, that you know, that is definitely one of the radical damages that the West has brought to China. Even today, there's a lot of resentment. And I think, and I think so, I think that has sort of tainted the impression of Christianity, one. And secondly, I think it's the way we've shared the gospel. And, and you know, it's understandable that if you come from the West um, and if you come from a Judeo-Christian worldview, the, the whole idea of, um, of guilt and uh, and 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 how in Christ you know we can have our sins washed away. We have sinned against this one true God, and therefore you know, um, and we can be saved. Um, the whole salvation that is couched in the language of guilt and innocence um, is very easily accepted accepted in the West. 
However, in the East, because it's a much more shame and honor culture, you know, the, the whole gospel when couched in the language of guilt, innocent, um, yes, obviously nobody wants to be guilty, right? And yes, I, I, I want to be saved from, you know, from my guilt. I, I don't want to be guilty. I want to be innocent. But I think it doesn't go deep enough to really deal and bring true transformation. I'm going to put you on a spot with a final question and and ask you to uh, look into the crystal ball. Um, based, based on current trends, do you have any idea how Christianity will fare in China in the next decades? Well, there are different ways of looking at that. You know, I have my, you know, colleagues in my field, some have uh, projected uh, this um, uh, this phenomenal growth of Christianity in terms of the uh, how Christianity might surpass, uh, Chinese Christianity might surpass that of the United States in terms of the number of followers. So, uh, which By the way, I Professor Lian is here referring to the work of yeah. sociology professor uh, Feng Yang Yang of Purdue University well. in Indiana. He's the author of the Oxford University Press book, Religion in China. And he argues that on current growth rates, China is destined to become the largest Christian country in the world by the 2030s, with close to 250 million Chinese Christians. Professor Lian, though, isn't so sure, he tells me. But he agrees with Yang that something very significant is going on. Despite government resistance, Christianity is somehow entering the mainstream in China. So, uh, which, by the way, I don't quite share. Uh, I think it's it will continue to have a vigorous growth in, in China. But I think number is it's only one side. It's one part, only one part of the the issue. There are other things involved. I think what's really important for us to recognize is that Christianity is coming into the cultural mainstream as a, a faith that inspires people. It has the kind of credibility that the, that the communist movement no longer has. And it emboldens people to do things that will have been uh, unthinkable otherwise, in the same way that it emboldened Lin Zhao to oppose uh, communism in her time. Let me give you one example. You probably know that December of 2020, a, a young woman, uh, a citizen journalist by the name of Zhang Zhang, who had gone to Wuhan during the, co the COVID lockdown in Wuhan to report on the real situation on the ground because the state media would not report uh, on the, the real situation. She saw that as her Christian duty to tell the truth. And she produced a lot of writings, actually, during those times when she was filming. And so I think she is one example of this, this search for civil society in contemporary China that has been inspired by the Christian faith. And for that, um, she, she was sentenced to four years in prison. I can see the same kind of thing happening with Christianity continuing to inspire people to do what people believe to be the right thing to do.
if you value what we do here on the podcast, why not head to underceptions.com and check out the new public library of print, audio, and video material designed to let the truth out. And please consider clicking the donate button. We are, I think, two thirds the way to covering the costs of this pod. And with your help, we can get there and expand. And boy, do we have expansions to tell you about later. Anything you can do is appreciated. Thanks so much. And while you're there, send me a question and I'll answer it in an upcoming episode. And if you're interested in other good podcasts, check out With All Due Respect with my friends, Michael Jensen and Megan Paldatois. They take on hot topics without the aggro. With All Due Respect, available wherever you get podcasts. Next episode we take a look at the universal yet undervalued human relationship of friendship. And we ask, is there something in contemporary culture that makes it hard for us to find and keep true friends? See ya. Underceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kayleigh Payne and directed by Mark Hadley. Or I need Mark. Editing by Richard Humway. Underceptions is the flagship podcast of Underceptions.com. Letting the truth out. An Underceptions podcast. <laughs>